Good morning, everybody. So my name's Chuck. I'm a member at Grace Community. Been here eight years. Eight years. I say that with a question mark. Eight years. I don't know when we started. But I hope you had a great Thanksgiving weekend. And I was just thinking this morning of all the delicious foods. Before I tell you my favorite, we're just going to do a really quick vote. And I'm going to give you some of the top foods. You only get to vote once. You can raise your hand and tell me what's your favorite food. That's all I want to know is just what's your favorite food. And you only vote once. Got that? That's the rules. You with me? All right, ready? Green bean casserole. Look around. Uh-huh, it's up there for sure. Uh, the turkey. Okay, all right. Ham? No, but yeah. Oh, there's Ken, all right. Um, how about the sweet potato casserole? All right, ready? All right. Uh, stuffing. Ooh, I did not expect that because I haven't yet said the best one, which is mashed potatoes. Right? Mashed potatoes, yep. Um, they put me in charge of the mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving because it is the most important part of the Thanksgiving meal, I think. And so we do 10 pounds of them. It's delicious. Yeah, anyway, welcome. I hope you're having a great Thanksgiving weekend. Um, we are about to kick off a new series, but I just wanted to remind you, if you've been here a while, I'm sorry, I missed one. The pie, Cindy, the pie, the pie. That's not the main meal. That's why I didn't say it. I purposely left it out. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So uh, we have been traveling through Genesis, and we did put a bookmark in that a couple weeks back. We are going to return to Genesis at, at the turn of the new year. Um, and then a couple weeks back, just as a reminder, we had Mission Sunday where Pastor Greg taught us about the uh, importance of prayer and how God responds to prayer in the life of a believer. And last week, uh, Rick was teaching us from Romans 8, uh, reasons to give thanks. Just a quick review. Who knows the three reasons he gave us? Here they are. Our bad things turn out for good. The good things we have cannot be lost, and our best things are yet to come. We're going to touch a little bit upon all those. You'll see those today as we get into the message. Um, but as I said, this morning we, we begin a six-week Advent series focused on the characters of Christmas. And so I will be teaching you about Buddy the Elf today, and then, and then George will have Cindy Lou Who next week. It's going to be so good. Um, no, not really. We're going to study the stories of the actual people that surrounded the first advent of Christ. Um, and when we launched the Genesis series, Don explained that the book, the Bible, is a record of God's saving acts throughout history. And it teaches and reminds us who he is and who we are. And so similarly, as we jump into this advent series, we're going to be seeing who God is as he worked in the lives of ordinary people to show his grace. So today we're going to focus on Zechariah and Elizabeth. As I was talking about George, George's teaching next week, I said, George, do you feel jealous that I got the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and you got Mary next week? And he's like, no, just the opposite. I think I got the best one. And I'm like, I think I got the best one too. I am so excited to share with you the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, I have just been so blessed by my study of it. Now, as we organize this and kind of walk through our message today, first we're going to attempt to learn a little bit about Zechariah's experience and what he learned about God. Secondly, we're going to put our focus on Elizabeth's journey. And then finally, we're going to bring them together to get the big idea. I think it becomes clear when we put them together. So if you have your Bible app or you want to use the screen, uh, we're going to go to Luke 1, and we're going to read the first portion. There is a lot of text today. But that's all right. It's all good. It's God's word. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 24. 
In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Father, the story of the Bible is the story of who you are and how good you are. You do amazing things to show that goodness. And you know we struggle to understand. You know we're fearful. You know we have doubts. But you are kind and persistent. And so we ask this morning that you would illuminate our understanding. Reveal yourself to us. Show, you more of, show us more of your character. Open our hearts, Lord. We rely on you and we thank you for your presence and for you teaching us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I shared with you the organizational strategy is going to be Zechariah first, Elizabeth next, and we're going to bring them together. So let's jump into who is Zechariah. Zechariah's name means God remembers. Zechariah said about himself, I'm an old man. Maybe he didn't hold out the old very long like I just did, but he didn't feel himself to be very young. He's an old man. We know from the scriptures he walks blamelessly in the commandments and statutes. Now, we understand that that doesn't mean he was perfect. He was imperfect. But when it says he's blameless, he's blameless in the law of Moses. So that means when he sins, he offers the right sacrifices for sins. He honors the Sabbath. He stays away from unclean foods, etc. We know that he's a priest of the Abijah division. Now, there are 24 divisions of priests 
Each division has about a thousand priests in them. So he's, he's one of many, right? We know his division is called up on duty. They would come and be on duty for a week, two weeks, I'm not quite sure, but they would stay in Jerusalem and they would provide the priestly services at Herod's temple, the temple that was built in that time. One of those services was to burn incense in the holy place. And Zechariah's number was called up. It's a one-in-a-lifetime type of thing. It's like a Tony Mariella at the Chili Fest kind of day. Okay? It's a big, big deal. Tony, it's never going to happen again. It's, this is it, right? Now, he steps into the holy place. Well, let me describe it. The holy place is about 15 feet wide. It's 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. At the far end of the holy place, there's a veil. That veil separates the holy place from the holy of holies, the most holy place. And right in front of that veil, in the center, there's an altar that's called the altar of incense. And Zechariah's job then would have been to walk in, to replace the coals, to replace the incense right up toward that veil. And then he would ceremonially follow and walk out of the holy place. His job was done. Nobody who was common walked into the holy place. It wasn't a place for everybody to go. The multitude was outside praying. They were at the hour of incense. They were praying in the court outside of the holy place. Priests alone could not just go into the holy place. You actually had to be the priest who was selected by lot to go into the holy place. You couldn't just say, well, this is my, this is my place, right? He had a very special job, and it was one person who was selected to do that. We know that they offered incense twice daily. We don't know if his was the morning shift or the evening shift, but we know from Exodus 30 that it was twice daily. And we know that when Zechariah entered that holy place, he entered it with trepidation and awe. He was respectful of where he was and whose he was. And I'm guessing that he had just completed the task of burning the incense when all of a sudden the angel of the Lord appears to the right of the altar of incense. And I'm thinking that he has to be done with burning the incense at that point because if I saw an angel, I would be no good in the immediate you know, time after that to go and finish my job. I would be a mess, and I, I would assume you would too. So he had probably just finished um, with the work at the altar. And the angel appears feet away, so if you take 15 and you cut it in half, that's seven and a half feet, right? So if he's at the altar finishing up, that angel is within feet of him, which would scare the bejesus out of me, right? And that is the right response. He is afraid. He's filled with fear because God is amazing, right? And some of the translations that I read said he was paralyzed with fear, now, what God says through the angel, we know it's the angel speaking, but it's the God of the angel that is actually speaking. And what God says reminds us of a simple and profound truth. So here's what happens. The angel steps in, and there's no guesswork. He's not like popping in and being like, hey, hey, Zechariah here? You Zechariah? No. Okay, I'll be back later. Okay, pop out. Pop back in. Are you Zechariah? It's not like that. He knows exactly when Zechariah is going to be there, exactly where Zechariah is going to be. Like the angel Gabriel didn't appear facing the veil by accident. You know, 
oh, you're over here. There was no confusion on God's part. God knew exactly where to look. Gabriel appears. He sees where Zachariah is. There's no guesswork at all on God's part. And there's no introduction needed like, hi, uh, I'm Gabriel. What's your name? Tell me a little bit about yourself. It's your Zachariah. He knows him by name. And he knows how Zachariah is feeling because he says to Zachariah, do not be afraid. He knows what Zechariah has been praying because he says to him, your prayer has been heard. He knows Zechariah's wife's name. He calls her Elizabeth. He knows Zechariah's future. He knows his son's future. He says, you will have a son and you will call him John and John will prepare the people for the day of the Lord. And so the lesson that we get is that there's no guessing with God. God knows absolutely everything about us. He knows our past, he knows our present, and he knows our future just like Mark was sharing when we were worshiping today. God knows you just as well as he knows Zachariah and every part of you. King David at one point realized this and he wrote Psalm 139 reflecting on it. It It's such a powerful idea that we have to keep returning to. And he said, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down And when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me and it is high. I cannot attain it. I mean, how wonderful it is that he knows your thought before you know your thought. Do you know how many thoughts you have in a given day? And he knows your thought. He knows the word before you speak it. Have you ever said a nonsense word just to demonstrate how much God knows about you? Like I would say flarp, right? Or whatever, make up a word. God knew I was going to make that word up before it ever hit my mind, hit my tongue. And it was a made up word. He knows everything about who you are. Jesus said it this way in the book of Matthew. He said, the Father knows what you need before you ask him in Matthew 6, 8. And in Matthew 10, verse 30, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows absolutely everything about us. If you want to back up, God knows it, but truly God knew it. In Jeremiah 1, 5, it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So yes, God knows you, but God also knew you. And if you really want to get deep on it, Genesis 1.14 was where God creates time. He creates time for us so that we know when to go to bed, when to get up, when the seasons are coming. He created time. Genesis 1.14 says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. But in Ephesians 1.4, it says he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. That means he knew you intimately before Genesis 1-1 ever happened. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but he knew you intimately before you were ever formed. And so to say that God knew us is also to say that God remembers us perfectly. So how fitting that Zechariah's name simply means God remembers. God remembers you perfectly. God knows you better than you know yourself. 
This good God with all the knowledge and love is never surprised or unprepared for our sin, for our follies. So he's not caught off guard when Zechariah doubts the angel's promise. That doesn't offend him or surprise him or go, oh, 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 he didn't believe me. Gabriel's not over there going, what? What are you talking about? Like, Gabriel's not surprised by that. It doesn't catch anybody off guard because God knows exactly how Zechariah is going to respond. They don't have to have a plan B. They know that Zechariah is going to say, I'm old. My wife's advanced in years. How can I know what you know? How can I be sure of what you're saying? There's no surprise. There's no need to huddle up and come up with a second, second plan. I think about this when I think about Jonah and all of the stuff Jonah went through trying to flee from God, trying to get away from God, trying to resist God's plan, and still God knew when he would be drifting down through the water. And over here is a, a great fish, and there is perfect timing as God's plan for you, for Jonah, for Zechariah. He knows exactly where you are today. He knows exactly what thoughts you have. He knows what's going on in your life. You have never for one second been forgotten. And so God is prepared for Zechariah's request. Zechariah basically says, I need a better sign than this. I mean, I know I got an angel and I know I'm in the holy place, but I need something a little bit more. And so God gives him what he needs. You need a sign? I'm going to give you a sign. This sign will carry you for the next nine months. Every time you want to speak, you won't. He gives him temporary mutism. Every time Zechariah goes to, that's the sign that God is with him right there in that moment. Temporary mutism. And it's also so beautiful because that mutism gives Zechariah the time he needs to reflect on who is this God? Just how great is he? And we know that it's the perfect thing for Zechariah in that time because the next time Zechariah speaks, it's not going to be doubt. It's going to be blessing God. That's what the scriptures say. We'll get back to that. Now, what's the conclusion when we understand how much God knows about us? For some people, it might be fear initially, right? You understand his perfect knowledge, and that scares you because maybe you don't also pair that perfect knowledge with his perfect love. So at the core of who we are, we have a desire to be fully known and fully loved. To be fully known without love is terrifying. But to be fully known with perfect love is the most satisfying thing a human can experience. No human can give another human that because our knowledge of one another is not perfect. And when we hide something, it's because we can't see ourselves being loved when the secret's made known. Love can only go as deep as the knowledge of something. Love, the love we experience, only goes as deep as the knowledge of the giver of the love. So if God has perfect knowledge of our past, our present, our future, of all our sins, of all our follies, and he loves us, that means he loves us perfectly. As deep as his knowledge of you goes, he loves you that much. And David said, this is too high. I cannot attain this kind of thought because it's so good. You have to continually expose yourself to that kind of thinking and not rush past it. Because when God unlocks that in your heart, it gives you a sense of peace you might not otherwise be able to obtain. And we need God to unlock this understanding in our heart.
So with Zechariah, we see just how much God knows us and remembers us. So let's return now and look into Elizabeth's life. Elizabeth's name means God's promise. We know that she is the daughter of Aaron, who was, I'm sorry, a daughter of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. Aaron was the first high priest, and Elizabeth has priestly lineage of her own. Like her husband, she's a devout Jew. She follows the law of Moses. She's advanced in years, and most scholars would say that means she's about 60. 60. She's been barren her entire life with Zechariah. Now, assuming she was married around 20, which was common, that would mean she's experienced 40 years of barrenness. She's a Jewish woman in an agrarian society about 2,000 years ago. Now, children weren't seen as a luxury like they are in America. They were seen as a necessity for survival. They were your strength. The Psalms refer to them as your arrows, your blessing. More practically speaking, they're your household workforce. That's how I use my kids too. You're welcome. All right. They are your future significance. And most importantly, they're the manager, the chef, the nurse, and the doctor of your future senior living facility. So having children was understood as the purpose of marriage and a necessity. But life has not worked out for her the way she expected, even though she's been such a good woman. Scripture says she was blameless in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And Elizabeth has no satisfying answer for why she's lived 40 years without children. Undoubtedly, she knows what we read when we read Genesis 1, verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. She sees that as a command, be fruitful and multiply. And she knows what God said in Deuteronomy 28 when the blessings and the curses of the Mosaic law are listed. In Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 4, it says words like, if you faithfully obey the commands that I give you today, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. You'll be blessed going in and blessed coming out. You'll be the head and not the tail. And one of the first blessings in Deuteronomy 28 is the fruit of your womb will be blessed. And when the curses are listed, that is also one of the curses, barrenness. So she sees barrenness as a curse. She's seen her family and friends have children, and I can only imagine how painful that must have been. And because she's been barren for 40 years, she's seen their children have children, and yet she's had none. And we are not ignorant about the enemy's devices. We know that the enemy would have taunted her and accused her when she was on her own in ways that she would have struggled with privately and not opened up to people. That's how he is. So, so we know that she also felt judgment and it says in Scripture she felt reproach, reproach of her people. Life's been difficult, but all of a sudden now in her 60s, decades of waiting are gone. The Lord steps into her life and gives her a promise, a son who would be the forerunner to the Messiah. Now, I'm not sure, but we know that Zechariah told her everything. Scripture pretty much makes that clear. And he probably had to do charades just like he did with the people outside the temple. And he, you know, he had to, I don't know. 
I don't know what the charades would have looked like, but he would have somehow indicated to her what was about to happen. And then shortly after that, her and Zechariah would have had a candlelit dinner. And after years of barrenness, years of hopelessness, she conceives. And so the lesson from Elizabeth's life is that God keeps his promise at just the right time. If we look back at Luke chapter 1, verse 20, that was what the angel said when he was talking to Zechariah. He said, Which will, my words will be fulfilled at just the right time, in their time. And then there's the question. How does Elizabeth even begin to tell this story to her community? So she doesn't right away, right? How do you say, uh, yeah, Zechariah saw an angel. He was made mute. I'm 60. I'm pregnant. You don't. You just don't tell it. So the scripture records that she just praised God. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And she keeps herself hidden for five months. And I'm wondering why five, and I don't know, except that maybe she was waiting for the baby to start to show. So that when she told the story, it was just a little bit more believable and people could understand a part of that story. So we hear, or we stop here with Elizabeth waiting with hope for her promised child. But Elizabeth is also an example of what's going on with the Jewish people. See, she's waited for 40 years for a baby, and she's been barren. They have waited for 40 centuries since the first prophecy about the one who would come. It was 4,000 years ago in Genesis 3.15. I will put my enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It was 40 centuries before where we heard about the serpent crusher. 21 centuries before that, when Abraham was told about a descendant who would bless all the families of the earth. 14 centuries, imagine how long that is. 14 centuries ago, before this date, 14 centuries when the promise was given through Moses that you'll have a prophet like me from among your brethren. There was a prophet named Micah a mere eight centuries prior. These people are waiting a long time. Eight centuries before, Micah said, you'll have a ruler whose origins are from ancient times. And then we get to Isaiah's prophecy. Seven centuries prior, Isaiah said, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We know now that the Messiah will be born as a child, and we still wait 700 years to go. That's a long time to wait for an answer. Elizabeth waited 40 years. Just 40 decades ago was when they heard the last prophetic voice that would speak of the Son who would set everything free, the child who would come. Forty decades ago, 400 years ago, they heard from Malachi, the prophet Malachi. And we see what Malachi said in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi also said the last words of the Old Covenant, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, 
I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Did that sound familiar? Good. Because that's what the angel quotes from when he speaks with Zechariah in the temple. And you should understand that Zechariah would have known that. He would have immediately made the connection to the last verse in Malachi. 400 years ago, he would have understood that. And now he knows that their son John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So hope is finally on the horizon, which is fitting that we have this message because the first week of Advent is the week of hope. So now the promise of the ruler, the Lord, the Messiah, will soon free the Jewish people. And Elizabeth, God's promise, waits for her promised son. So how does this apply to us today? On today, the 26th day of November in 2023, just like them, we wait for the promise. The Jewish people of Elizabeth's day lived in Jesus' first advent. They didn't know that there would be a first coming as a lamb, and then he would secondly return as a lion. And we live in that second advent. We wait for the lion to step forward. First, he came to sacrifice for sins, to free us from certain death, to break the isolation that we had from God. And we wait for the ruler to return who will set all things right. Like Elizabeth and the Jewish people, the waiting requires our patient hope. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Last week in the family meeting, Don said, God is never late, but he's rarely early. Is that how you said that? Never late, but he's rarely early. So we wait, we look up, we have hope. Because as Rick shared from Revelations 21, there's coming a day soon when he will return. And I take that word soon from scriptures. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain, no more sadness, no more death. We know that God is faithful to fulfill his promise. So like Elizabeth and the Jewish people, we await that promise. Now, let's review. With Zechariah, we know that God knows absolutely everything about us. God remembers with Elizabeth, God keeps his promise at just the right time. But this story is ultimately not about this couple being barren, being old. It's not really about the son God gave them. Let's go back to the story. Read from Luke 1, 57 to 66 and see what else we can pull out of it. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. 
Told you he would bless God the next words he spoke. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. I want to call the worship team up. Now, let's just pause and wonder a few things. Why would God choose Zechariah and Elizabeth? There were other couples. Why did God choose a barren couple at all? He didn't have to. Why does God put this story in the book? And what is all the fuss with naming this child John? Let's revisit name meanings for a second. In America, my name's Chuck. Chuck means strong. There is nothing in the name Chuck that sounds like the word strong at all. Doesn't matter if you say it fast or slow or you muffle your voice. They don't sound alike. They don't necessarily connect. But in the Hebrew language, the names came from the word parts of the Hebrew language. So when we go back over a name like Zechariah, Zechariah means God remembers because in Hebrew, Zakar means to remember and Yah is God. Zakar, Yah, Zechariah, to remember. Zechariah means to remember. Elizabeth means God's promise. Now John. John stems from the Hebrew word Hanan. That sounds a little like John, doesn't it? Over time, it's changed to John. The word was Hanan. And John means grace. So let's put them all together to see what the big message is that God put into this. God remembers that Zechariah, his promise, Elizabeth, and gives grace, that's John, to the hopeless. God remembers his promise and gives grace to the hopeless. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth, we are all hopelessly barren, except for the grace of God. Now, John's just one demonstration of God's grace. But there'll come a time down the road when John will grow up, and he will see the example of God's grace walking, and he'll point to his disciples and say, you see that? He's the Lamb of God, right? John was a small example of God's grace. Jesus was the embodiment of God's grace. We know that Jesus would live a perfect life, knowingly laying down his life on the cross for you. No greater grace than the free gift of salvation. Now, as we listen to Zechariah's prophecy at the end of chapter 1, I want you to listen for how he speaks of God's grace, God's undeserved favor, God's free gift in his prophecy. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's Jesus. And he spoke by the mouth, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking of John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, speaking of Jesus. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. God's grace is the need of every one of us, not just to get that thing. And those are graces that we experience from the Lord in our life but to get the one, Jesus, who changes everything. That grace from God might be pulling on your hearts today in some way. I hope it is. And if it is, my only encouragement would be that you consider how you can respond to that. Because that grace is the biggest need of our lives, represented in Jesus who died and rose again to grant us freedom. So if you hear Jesus calling you and prompting you, respond to that grace. It will be the singular best decision of your entire existence. Let's pray and then stand and sing. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the message of grace demonstrated in Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John, but given to us through Christ Jesus. We thank you that your grace is bigger than our problems, bigger than every challenge, and we thank you that your grace extends into eternity forever, and our best is yet to come. Lord, we love you. We are grateful for you and how you've selected us. In Jesus' name.